Why is digital scarcity and ownership uh, and in the context of music important? I think if you want to make that argument, you really have to believe in a couple of things. The, the first premise is more and more of our lives are becoming digital. Like a sizable number of people, especially during the pandemic, even if they're employed, they're playing video games. Uh, if you're working, a lot of people are working from home. Most people own smartphones. Uh, most people transact uh, digitally. And that is a trend that has only increased over the past 20 years, let's say. And th the second premise you have to buy into is that people should accrue value for what they contribute. And contribution can come in many forms. The traditional model in music has been, you know, if you're lucky, you get signed to a record label, let's say, and then you get an advance or some portion of proceeds of the, of the revenue stream. In the worst case, if you're a musician, you never get signed to a record label and you, you sort of have to self-distribute Maybe you do own uh, your own IP, but like you may not have the full package, uh, full set of tools needed to distribute your content and to monetize it. Mm -hmm. So if you believe in those two premises, then what blockchain does provide is very much an end-to-end -end solution for the distribution and the ownership of your music as digitally scarce resources. And it gives you an out-of-the-box way to accrue value from it because you don't have to go through the rigmarole of, okay, I have to issue CDs and if I put it on Spotify, uh, you know, I'm going to get 0.001 cents per stream, right? It's, it's a much more direct transactional method. So those are the reasons I think if you're a musician, you, you believe that uh, accruing value for your contribution is important and you believe increasingly our lives are going to be digital, then I think there's a strong argument for why this is important for musicians. Welcome everybody to the Baking, Baking Notes, Notes. Oh, Podcast, 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 Podcast. Baking fam, we got episode for you. Uh, who do we have on today, Drew? We have none other than Yuga Kohler, the conductor and cultural innovator of our generation. Uh, he got his bachelor's degree from Harvard in computer science and got a master's degree, he's one of us, from the Juilliard School in conducting. He's currently the music director of the Ridgefield Symphony Orchestra and is a software engineer for Coinbase. So this is somewhat of a continuation of the previous episode with Aubrey, the future of music, like where are we going to be in five to 10 years and what can we do about it? How are we going to wind up on the positive side? How do we stay relevant and how can we make this better? Of course, with his experience of putting on shows like uh, we got Yeetoven with our dear friend Johan Lennox. That's awesome. And so he's been in the trenches. He's been actively going out and doing some of the things we talked about with Aubrey, trying to make change within classical music. Of course, he's working at Coinbase. We had to have him in and to really dig into crypto. I know we've had some crypto people here and out, and he's working at one of the biggest companies, one of the biggest exchanges uh, in all of crypto. So we do some of the basics. And we also really dig into the weeds and get some great explainers. So if you're like new to crypto, there's going to be some really well thought out, some very clear and concise ways to understand why does it matter in general and why does it matter in music. And we do spend a lot of time at a high level zooming out to really figure out what is crypto and why does it matter to music and how is it going to impact you. We wrap up at the very end, ideating a bunch of fun things to really kick off music within 
the blockchain space. So stick around. You're going to love this one. Yuga is awesome. As always, y'all, if you are enjoying the podcast, if you're getting some value, deliver some value back to us, please subscribe, download, uh, and leave us a review, y'all. We love hearing your feedback, and it is essential to us keeping this thing going. Here is a message from Emmanuel Jacob. He's a member of the Faking Fam. He We recently had a conversation with him in the Discord, and he was like, yo, I have no idea if you'll actually see this, but I just want to thank you for all the work that you do. I've recently discovered the podcast and it's really been an amazing source of inspiration. Y'all are so appreciated. Thank you, my dudes. Thank you, Emmanuel Jacob. And if you want us to read a review, leave it for us, man. Like we, we love y'all and uh, we hope you're loving what we're doing here. If you want to talk with us between the episode, uh, join the Discord. We do a lot of activities. We've been able to talk to a bunch of the listeners, get ideas, uh, and as well as have feedback sessions and conversations with Emmanuel. So thanks again for that review. If you'd like to support us financially, Patreon. Give us your money. Patreon. Uh, <laughs> and of course, we've got YouTube videos now. You can watch us. You can see our beautiful faces. You can hear the beautiful sounds uh, with visuals, which is something we talk about later in this episode. But without further ado, our next guest, the Yuga Culver. Welcome. Woo-hoo. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Long, long time fans. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming through. So something that Drew always gets to do with our guest is bring up when he first met them or some beautiful experience. And so ours is, is not like a particularly like super memorable one on our end. We've been floating in different circles, but haven't bumped into each other too much in the physical world. Um, I'm loving your Twitter, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> but I specifically remember this story. So starting, I'm starting at Juilliard, getting the masters or whatever, and you're a composer. So our job is to find conductors. conductor. Yeah. Conductor, yeah. No, no. So, yeah, I'm a composer. And like, oh, they're yeah. like, okay, go find a conductor. That's who you want as your friend. And so I'm hanging out with all the composers. There's Paul Frook, of course. Uh, and they're like, hey, so-and-so is, is throwing a little party. It's the beginning of the year, and it's like the first event I'm going to. And I believe it might have been at your place, but <laughs> you were at you were oh. at this party. Okay. And you had you had just recently graduated uh, in the previous year, and so I'm walking. They're like, "Hey, he was just finished his conducting degree, and we, we're just having you know some nice little small talk." And you were kind of down. You were like. You, you know, it's, it's like hard out there. Like I want to be conducting more, you know, it's just takes a long time. And I'm like consoling you. I'm like, yeah, you know, conducting such like, it's a, it's like a long game. You kind of got to just be around and like, and you know, I'm like, so, you know, so what are you up to these days? And you're like, ah, just working at Google. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was like, wait, what? And you're like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just working at Google. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, how'd you get into that? Like, oh, I got like a computer science degree from Harvard. I'm just like, oh, this motherfucker. <laughs> but like, I remember that. It's such a small little conversation, seven, eight, whatever, many years ago. But you've been doing so much dope shit at such a Thank high you. level that being at the top of the game isn't enough. It feels like every episode the past, uh, like for this season, we have to talk about Kobe, but like this like laser-like <laughs> focus on... Uh, improvement and perfection and taking things to the next level. 
re- remembering from our first meeting to where you are now. You're doing it. You're doing the grind. So I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. That that's so nice of you, man. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. I know I consider myself fortunate. I mean, yeah, like Trevor, you mentioned we we met each other when you came into Juilliard. Uh, I, I was just listening to you know some spots of past episodes of Faking Notes, and it was just really interesting how like. You know, Drew, you and I worked together for the first time in a group news, I think. That was the yeah. first time I worked really connected. Was it the Serenade for Strings? Yep, Tchaikovsky Serenade for Strings. That's right. Let's That's go, right. Man. And you just you guys just had Sam Bodkin on. I recognized a bunch of the guests you had on, obviously. And, uh, you know, I think the company you keep really helps elevate your game, you know, when you're surrounded by good people and people who want to achieve that. And it's, it's important to have a strong support system, too. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here and I feel really fortunate. Can we actually just really quickly before we delve into it, that memory of the serenade for strings <laughs> at that group muse. What do you remember from that night? Cause I, I remember personally, we were playing that we'd d- just done a reading. Some of us with Isaac Perlman, cause he just wanted to conduct serenade for strings randomly. It's so like that week I, it was in my fingers, but like what specifically do you remember from that night? I remember it being extraordinarily fun. First of all, you guys sounded amazing, obviously, cause you were all Juilliard students in your prime and you just played peace. Right. So I didn't have to do much, Uh, but it was also such a casual atmosphere. Like people were drinking and chilling. It was very much like Brooklyn in 2014. It's like, doesn't get, you know, much more hipster than that. Right. Yeah. And it was such a different setting from, you know, a traditional conducting setting. And it felt uh, like I could just kind of enjoy the music more than worry about, you know, whether the, concert master like hated my guts or something like that you know <laughs> so I, I just remember it being fun i obviously remember you you being principal viola and just killing it and uh yeah it was a good time man that's the one cool thing about uh group muse and creating atmosphere it takes away so much of this exclusionary sort of atmosphere that's created by the art form and by the culture that the art form tends to keep. Everybody just getting together, drinking, vibing, and listening to a piece of music that rarely gets to be played. It was memorable. And I remember you especially in your conducting style and the way you work with us, there was just this level of mutual respect and trust that is just so rare with conductors. I feel like conductors, they just want to like strangle you to death (laughs) if you're not with my ictus. But you you were playing with us as much as we were playing with you. And I'll never forget that. I appreciate that you remembered that, man, because it's, you know, you play with so many people, you work with so many people, and it's easy to kind of forget those moments sometimes. Definitely. No, I mean, in my experience, those are the best ones where it really feels like, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche to say, but like, it feels like chamber music. It's not necessarily the conductor imposing their will on uh, on the group, but it's sort of just one big super organism and it all feels kind of inevitable. And that's interpersonally, that's musically, that's philosophically kind of along all the dimensions. You know, and those experiences, as, as you guys, I'm sure you know, they do become more rare, rarer and rarer as you become more of a professional and you go from gig to gig to gig to gig. I, you know, if you're in like a string quartet or if you have like a really good relationship with a particular ensemble as a composer, I think it, it can be really fun 
But, you know, the more gigs you do, it's like it's tough to find those situations. I mean, especially as a conductor, you know, you go in as a guest conductor. And again, it's like you're really trying to make sure the music sounds good. But at the same time, like it's hard to build a rapport or a relationship with orchestra, especially, for instance, if there's like a big age disparity, right, as a young conductor. Uh, if it's some other country, some foreign country that you don't know too well, for example, or you're not accustomed to culture, there are all, all these different barriers. So, yeah, I'm definitely grateful for gigs like that where there's a real genuine connection. Let's talk a bit about some of your more interesting and like what you've, I mean, they're all interesting. So that's not the right way. It's boring ass gigs. Like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's take a second and I want to really dig into some of uh, your like longer term collaborations that have really stuck out. So obviously the real homie, Johan on the pod mm -hmm. is inevitable. We've got to get you on here. We got you, Tobin. It's fucking dope. We got K-pop. What of course we like about you is in that Kobe sense, you were on the court, you were fighting, uh, you were going out, you were evolving, you were growing. And it really just sticks out to me for someone to kind of go out on a limb, say, I want to do something different. I want to take this seriously and then develop an awesome experience. Could you just give us a little bit of the uh, Yeetoven Spice? Yeah, definitely. So uh, for context, Yeetoven was this project uh, that a uh, composer friend of mine named Johan, nay, Stephen Feigenbaum, uh, created. We've been <laughs> friends since uh, middle school, actually, honestly. Um, and so, yeah, long, long time oh. homies. Uh, so the premise of the project, uh, this was in 2013. Yeezus had just come out. And in 2014, 2015, I was really, you know, bumping to Kanye. Like I'd been listening to him for a long time since graduation, uh, late registration, all that. And, uh, you know, I really did believe that Kanye was an artist if you zoom out and say 20, 30 years, 200 years, 300 years from now, uh, and think about who are the musicians of our time, Kanye is going to be up there just based on the impact he's had. And so in that sense, there's a real analog there between Kanye and some of the artists uh, of the past, most notably Beethoven, who is kind of this very central figure in the classical music canon. And so we started with that premise, uh, and we wanted to create an orchestral concert experience that uh, developed that thesis musically. Uh, so it was a concert uh, that compared six works uh, by Kanye to six works uh, by Beethoven. Uh, and we, we paired them up thematically. So like we took sort of a compositional technique or a philosophical aspect of the music that both pieces of music shared. And then we paired them up. Sometimes they were just side-by-side -side performances. Other times they were like sort of mashup E, kind of like, you know, juxtaposed next to each other within a single composition type of thing. And so, yeah, we premiered that in 2015. That went uh, really well. We got a ton of coverage. It went pretty viral. I posted it on uh, Reddit, uh, I think Hip Hop Heads and uh, and then Pigeons and Planes picked it up, and then mm -hmm. like a bunch of other places, Rolling Stone, LA Mag, Time mm -hmm. Magazine, LA Times, et cetera. Uh, it was just kind of like we leveraged the internet, and it was you know it was very clickable content, Kanye plus orchestra, uh, and this was you know before Kanye's heel turn in 2016, 2017. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, Oops. It, it was pretty benign. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so that was that was a cool experience, and then we did a second version of it when Life of Pablo came out, and we did that at Lincoln Center which gave it further legitimacy, which was really fun and cool. So yeah, it was definitely a, definitely, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of. You know, we always talk about in classical music, we're like, how do we get new audiences? How do we get younger people interested? How do we bridge the gap? Right. But instead of talking about it, you guys actually did it. 
how many orchestras reached out, if any, to you after, you know, producing a show with this level of success and crossing the demographics? Yeah, great question. Uh, I mean, the answer is like zero, basically. <laughs> oh, God. The answer is basically, I mean, that's not entire too. I think there were maybe, there was like maybe one orchestra in the UK that like had a soft ass, but like it was even the opposite, right? <laughs> we were like, hey, we'd love to take the show on the road. We'd love to do this, you know? So we were like making cold calls or sometimes we'd have connections to orchestra. We'd like ask them like, hey, would you be interested? And especially once you get to like the tier two, tier one professional orchestras, uh, there's basically zero interest in it. Wow. After wow. Time Magazine, <laughs> right? Yeah. After Rolling yeah. Stone, you would think that they would take it seriously. Wh- where do you think that comes from? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I-, I wonder like how like uh, unfiltered I-, I should be here. Well, uh, nobody <laughs> listens to this podcast. First. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, no one – no one who who is making decisions at these orchestras is listening <laughs> yet. They definitely some of our guests like we we tell the truth here, so they definitely unsubscribe. Got it. <laughs> so you know uh, this is speculation. You know I'm yes. not an orchestral administrator, and uh, frankly, I don't have too many friends in that line of business. You know, most of my friends are talented. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, just kidding. Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I do think, you know, the, the typical orchestral administrator is probably going to be above the age of 50. They probably have been rising up the ranks of the traditional orchestral structure, administrative structure. Generally, uh, orchestral administrators tend to be sort of either former musicians or people who have, you know, an interest in the arts, but aren't, aren't musicians themselves. Just like uh, any other institution, they're going to adhere to a very strict set of principles that have gotten them where they are and they're going to keep replicating that and they're not going to be incentivized to take risks because the downside at least from their perspective is going to be too much you know if they just program Beethoven 9 again you're probably going to sell it out it's all going to be 80 year olds but that's fine you're probably going to sell it out right you'll get the nice review from the critic if you program Kanye you don't really know what's going to happen uh, and you know, you probably know you're going to piss off some of the 80 year olds and you probably don't even like Kanye that much anyways. So there's no real incentive alignment to take that type of risk, I think. And I think that's not necessarily specific to classical music. I think that's an institutional thing uh, across any industry, but, uh, I think classical music just by the nature of what it is, right. It's, it's sort of bastion of old music. That's fundamentally what it is, despite what you know, we as performers and composers may want it to be in the 20, 21st century. If that's what it is, then it kind of makes sense that they would be risk-averse enough not to want to program something like Beethoven. That was a diplomatic as fuck <laughs> response, and one that is—it's very true, and one that I've kind of, kind of come to conclusions about as well. We recently had a guest named Aubrey Bergauer. Oh, I know. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know her. I know of her. Yet she's Mm -hmm. phenomenal. And we were talking about this at length. What's enough pain for an institution to maybe want to innovate, right? What's, what's the pain point and the threshold for them to take action and do things a little differently? And it's kind of this game of chicken as to, you know, head on collision with, you know, insolvency and dissolution. Or, you know, maybe a little bit of innovation, taking some risk and maybe taking some short-term losses. 
for long-term gains. So we'll see what happens. But I know that the institutions that will succeed are going to be the ones that lend you their ear. I mean, Drew, I'd be curious to hear from you since, you know, you're in L.A. You're obviously you're doing a lot of different things. I know you're playing films and stuff and and like uh, the studio gigs and so forth. But you're probably also I think you're more integrated into like the traditional classical scene, whether it's like Southern orchestras or that kind of thing. And I'm curious what you're seeing on the ground, especially like in the context of the pandemic. Do you feel like we're approaching that max pain point or do we still have a ways to go? That is a great question. Um, (laughs) You know what? I think what's different about LA when you juxtapose it to New York is that there Mm. is no real appetite when you take the average person who's off the street, right, who likes music there's no appetite for classical music. Like they love string playing. They love the idea of it and they love going to Hollywood bowl, but they're not necessarily going to Hollywood bowl to see, you know, Dvorak. They're going to see Jurassic park or Harry Potter Mm -hmm. or, you know, yo, yo ma play all Bach cello suites. Yeah. You know, it's more for like the performance and the entertainment aspect than the classical art itself. I think it's more progressive in what classical music can be. I think it's a place where these smaller institutions are more nimble and are much more reactive to more innovative ideas, more more modern applications of these older ensemble configurations. However, institutions like New York, like the Met and, and, and New York Phil, I'm not intimately uh, acquainted with their their fundamentals when it comes to their finances or cash flows, but I imagine that the pandemic has made them have to tighten their belts. And when you look at the trend of audience sizes for all classical music institutions going in the red, like on a very predictable and consistent basis, you would think that maybe in the next five to 10 years, there's going to be a real problem. <laughs> Even just to piggyback off that. So one thing that LA does right in classical music is I think they just understand that the experience is really what matters in mm-hmm. that yep. a lot of people show up to those Tchaikovsky normal LA Phil concerts in the bowl. It's, it's an awesome thing. You're going there. Yes. If you parked at the bowl, it's going to take you four hours to leave the parking lot. Yeah. But it's a beautiful time. Don't eat at the concession stands. It's 50 minutes for the worst burger of your life. Um, and it's $40. But you go there and it's an awesome experience, even yeah. after all the line waiting. You know, they get the young conductor and it's fun. And Disney Hall is beautiful. The building's beautiful. Like, don't look across to the crappy courthouse parking lot. But, um, <laughs> Like you're going there and there's just something really like fun and buzzy and inherently more young in LA. And then look at what their orchestra does. Anytime one of the other big orchestras rolls out and they're like, yeah, we commissioned five composers this year. LA feels like 50, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> 50 composers. And yeah, yeah. They, they don't shy away from the film stuff. It's good for the budget. It's good for the fans. But I think they just realize that it's not even necessarily – Uh, about going through and just having to do the staples but i think they put in more energy into making it more interesting and just understanding that if people come they have a good experience they're going to come back they're not necessarily showing up for what is on the program and that's something that i see missing from elsewhere does that kind of like reflect with what you're starting to see you go 
Totally. And Trevor, you just moved back to New York, did I see? I just moved back, and then I just flew back. I'm back in Denver, getting married in a few weeks, and then I'll be back to New York for good. So Awesome. Awesome. That's yeah. exciting. Um, also, you know, since I was music director of an orchestra in LA for three years, that was the sense I got as well, that like there is more vibrancy, there is more sort of diversity across every every um, layer of, of the musical stack in terms of like just the people involved, for instance, but also the musical styles, the venues, uh, the, uh, et cetera. So um, I definitely did notice that. And I think LA is more progressive. I did like, Drew, what you said about this sort of five to 10 year uh, horizon thing, because that is sort of a thesis I have held as well. Interesting. Uh, and maybe maybe it's not, I don't know, it's, it's really hard to predict time horizons. But like one thing I sort of decided, you know, you know, Trevor, you mentioned we met like right after I had graduated from Juilliard. I think we were two years apart. So this mm -hmm. must have been like 2013, 2014. You know, around that time, I was like I was taking auditions for like very traditional sort of assistant conductor type roles like Dallas Symphony, um, New World Symphony, Fort Worth Symphony, things like that. Right. And, you know, if you got like a New York Phil assistant. Uh, audition that was like a huge deal, right? I didn't end up winning any of those. I mean, I think that's like totally normal. Like that's just part of the course. You just have to take a bunch of them before you win. But at a certain point, I was like, you know, I I just don't want to do that. I don't really want to essentially do the musical equivalent of the traditional music administrator path, where you have to be under the supervision or your success is depending on people who don't have the same values as you do. They may not have the competency required to manage you, or they may not have the same outlook on the art form as you do. That would have been a recipe for disaster for me. And like, you know, it's hard being musicians, like hard on your mental health. So like I, I decided if I'm going to pursue music, I'm going to do it in the way I kind of want to do it. But more than that, my thesis was this model for classical music is not sustainable over the long term. And the reason it's not sustainable is because there's not enough organic demand for it. And so if you live in a, you know, a fundamentally capitalist society like America without uh, particular historical roots uh, that make classical music, a particular affinity in place like Europe, right? Like a mm -hmm. lot of that stuff was written, uh, you know, Germany and Austria, what France, whatever. And not to discount the many, you know, American composers who, by the way, you know, especially as of late, started to shine a light on. I think that is actually really important. But like the fact of the matter is like there's just at, at a sort of consumer, shallow consumer level, there's just not a demand for it. There isn't a demand for it. So then that means that either the whole apparatus eventually disintegrates or it'll morph into something that it, out of necessity, like you said, it'll have to morph into something over the course of the next however many years. And I kind of want to position myself as being the conductor who was early to that so that when that transformation happens, I can be ready and say, look, these are the ideas. This, this is what I've done. And, you know, they're going to hopefully be people who want to kind of uh, go on that journey together. And so, you know, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up, bro. Okay. So I wanted to kind of like circle back a little bit. One thing that I love about your Beethoven and your K Factor programs is that when you study marketing, there's one thing that's really important in storytelling, right? It is taking a schema, something that the user, the consumer 
understands and relating that to an unknown schema, something that they're not familiar with, right? And melding them together. That synthesis is what creates sticky ideas. By nature, most people understand Kanye. They've heard his music at one point or another, but most people haven't heard Beethoven's, uh, was it the Egmont Overture? It was Egmont, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Egmont Overture. They they don't know what's about, was it Napoleon, like getting his head Uh, chopped off or what? (laughs) It, no, it's about like a p- political, like a political uprising, basically. Political, like the French <laughs> Revolution type, type beat type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most people are not going to make that association, right? <laughs> but the proof is in the pudding. Time, Rolling Stone, they all kind of got it and how clickable it was because it was two unrelated things melding together to make something really beautiful, right? So I'm curious if do you have anything? cooking in your noggin that is similar that that is like gonna be as innovative because if you don't i got a couple ideas for you (laughs) i would love to hear those ideas i mean i do have some stuff i've been working on like johan and i have been working on a project for a while now first of all i totally agree with your schema analogy like that's definitely how it works right like you you want to create these organic connections between what people are familiar with and connect it to the unfamiliar and elucidate how they are similar I am like a little wary of, okay, it was Kanye, Beethoven, then do you just do Brahms, Radiohead, and then do you do, you know, composer A, pop artist Y? Like maybe you can keep doing that, but, you know, that just starts to feel a little stale to me uh, unless you really, really believe in it. You know, I do think it's like incumbent upon us to like keep innovating, keep thinking of new ways of presenting the art form. But uh, Drew, I mean, if you have ideas, I'd love to hear them. Well, they were all kind of in, it, it's just lighthearted, but I was like, I'd always thought about, you know, the similarities between Tchaikovsky and Drake. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Just the the quintessential melodic earworm. Most people in the rap game can't stand Drake. They're like, he's like, man, he's so pedantic. Same thing with Tchaikovsky. <laughs> Composers can't stand Tchaikovsky. They're like he's yeah, just doing yeah. the same theme in every key. I don't know if that is a strong enough uh, basis, but I agree with you. I think it's really important to understand, trying not to be gimmicky, and really creating something that can stand on its own two legs without trying to rely on a certain mode. You gotta continue to innovate. So. Yeah, um, I just definitely. wanted to pick your brain. Like, have you thought of like any other interesting schema that that you could build like an innovative program on? Yeah, I, so I can share a couple. One idea we had was okay. Well, what would a modern day opera that people actually wanted to see look like, and that could be producible and that would have a wide draw? This is another idea Johan and I had. Like, imagine for instance, Chance the Rapper right? Who okay. is very big into like gospel music. Obviously that's like, you know, church and so forth. Like that's a big part of him. Ultralight beam that he was on, like, is all about that. Imagine like the presentation, essentially just his works, right? His songs from Acid Rap to Coloring Book, which have so many like intricate musical things integrated into them, but you just sort of contextualize them on stage with uh, orchestral and gospel elements. And you just, call it an opera like it's like metropolitan opera presents chance the rapper you know xyz work right then you've sort of flipped the whole narrative on its head 
right? Because it's like, oh, but how can this be opera? And Kanye did that too, sort of, with his whole LA thing. Yeah, I was there. I played on that. Oh, you played on that? How was that? Uh... (laughs) (laughs) I remember you told the stories about that, Drew. Yeah. The rehearsals? It was avant-garde. Yeah, fair enough. It was avant garde. Avant and rehearsed. We'll, 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 uh, we'll talk about it when we're not recording. How about that? I got it. Okay. okay. <laughs> okay. I want to take this opportunity to. Kind of combine everything we've mentioned so far we've been talking about innovation we've been trying to think about the future and pain points and gatekeeping bucking tradition institutions that need evolving taking risk and combining different skill sets which you are yourself doing with your computer programming skills and your conducting skills so after many years of service at Google, and there was some exciting news. Drew and I were like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. You know, <laughs> oh, shit. I was like, oh, this is good. Coinbase, which is probably the biggest known crypto institution, exchange. so to speak, yeah. that mm-hmm. people are aware of. When, when, we, when you first go to buy some crypto, you're going on Coinbase. And so it's super exciting uh, to have one of our musician brethren to go in there and be a representative at Coinbase. So we'd like to really dig in uh, yeah. for the rest of this conversation on the crypto space. We've now had a couple guests, and like now we got someone who is in it to win it, working at the top of the game. So how'd you get Coinbase? How'd that work out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So um, you know, I've been at Google for seven and a half years, long time, right? I'd enjoyed my time there. I'd learned a ton. You know, as a software engineer, it's you learn so much just like building out systems that hit, uh, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of users a day. But it was time. Um, and, you know, working there during the pandemic from home, there were just a lot of factors that made it not as pleasant to work there, at least where, where I was sitting. Mm-hmm. I was leading a team of about 13 engineers and you become responsible for their careers and you want to see them grow. But it's really hard to do that when you're like not in the office necessarily. But also like, you know in the thick of the pandemic, September, October, November, 2020, it was really toxic politically in America during that time. I'm sure you remember. Oh my and, God. Yeah, what, what happens? <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. And, yeah. And Google is very much like a microcosm of that. You know, just because Google search is like a reflection of the American or the world id, right? It's just people type in and that's the word, you know? So um, I decided it was time to leave. Um, so, you know, I, I did, I hadn't, you know, set my mind on Coinbase. I, I was interested in crypto. I had been investing in Bitcoin since about uh, the 2017 bull run, 20, and then 2018 crypto winter came, but like I kept reading about it. But you know, one of the places I interviewed after uh, Google was Coinbase, and I went through the interview process. And, and as I interviewed, I started reading more, more, I got into Ethereum a lot. That ended up working out. And so uh, now where I sit is actually really cool. Uh, I sit in the crypto org. So as you can imagine, like it's a big company. Obviously, you'd think everything is related to crypto, but it's not, right? There's like the exchange component. There's the venture capital arm. There is um, the prime brokerage component. Uh, there's the, the front-end business logic. There's data analysis. And you know, the, the place where I sit is actually the technology that interfaces with uh, all of the blockchains 
that uh, Coinbase uh, allows for trading and withdrawals and interactions and so forth. So I work on the systems that um, service liquidity uh, for Coinbase. So like if you ever want to withdraw crypto from Coinbase, that goes through our systems. And I, I tend to specialize in Ethereum L1. And so like I'm responsible for making sure Coinbase will get through the merge. Uh, which is scheduled for Q2 2022 and uh, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's been it's been really fun. Can I just say I can't wait for the proof of stake movement for Ethereum. It's time. It is just time. We've been waiting. We've been waiting, <laughs> and I'm curious. So so if you made an altar in your closet that you would go and like light a candle for, would it be for Satoshi or would it be for Vitalik Buterin? I mean, they're both uh, they're both amazing for different reasons, right? Satoshi just being pseudonymous and creating this myth of value created from nothing is pretty remarkable in and of itself. What's amazing about Vitalik is like how approachable he is. Ethereum is an amazing thing, right? These all core devs meetings, where which happen biweekly, and they talk about like the intricacies of the node software and like the decisions they're making about the design and so forth. These are open meetings. Anybody can go. They get posted to the Ethereum Go Discord. If you just click through the right links, anybody can go, right? I have to go because I have to make sure this is work for Coinbase. Yeah. But like, there, you know, there's no reason like you couldn't go if you wanted to. And, you know, Vitalik's on the call. It's like 30 of us. He's just another person that's like trying to figure it out. I mean, he's he commands a certain level of respect, but like people routinely like challenge his uh, opinions, raise counter arguments and so forth. And he, you know, he takes in a stride and like, I think he's been a remarkable leader of a $500 billion uh, market. <laughs> you know what I mean? I have trouble wrapping my mind around it, but um, yeah, I mean, I think they're both, they're both amazing. And he's younger than us too, right? He's pretty young. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. That's, I don't know what I would have been doing uh, at his age, probably playing League of Legends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he does, he does talk about how um, one of his motivations for designing or thinking about NFTs was because he wanted the gear he bought in World of Warcraft to translate to other video games, right? Mm. And that was his first moment where why can't we just digitally own property that's uh, mutable across various platforms? I wish my musings turned into $500 billion issues. <laughs> like, like, oh, wouldn't that be nice? But I'm I'm so happy we have we're able to have you on here because we've had so many people kind of like leading up to this. So we can feel free feel free to get into into the weeds uh, yeah. and zoom out as much as possible. Tying this back into music, what are we gonna do? I mean, obviously there's some <laughs> like NFT. Uh, okay, ownership of songs, some rights here, some some tickets here, which is something Drew and I are working on, and many others and so there's some kind of like surface level like obvious things that can tie in but at at a larger scale how is music and classical music going to be able to embrace this tech what are some of going to be some of the first like impacts it makes into there and what should we do to not get left behind how do we fit blockchain into the puzzle yeah it's a great question i mean it's certainly one a thing i've been thinking about uh for a long time What's interesting to me as a meta comment here is like we have one of the OG Web 2.0 classical music founders in this chat here in the form of Drew Ford, right? <laughs> like it's true. It is true. No, I mean that's in your bio, fact. Drew. Web two. Web two. Web two, uh, two classical. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
no, because I, I remember when, when you were like uh, building your Instagram following like in the early days and I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then I kind of followed suit. And um, for crypto and classical music, it's an interesting question. I don't have a specific answer for you. Obviously, you've had Sam on and he has a vision for making group music a DAO, tokenizing it and so forth, which is potentially viable. We've talked together about, uh, about that too. And I have some questions on that, but it's certainly something worth trying out. Here is how I do think about it. Again, I don't have a full end-to-end solution for you, right? Um, but here is how I do think about it. Right now, if you look at the space of culture on the chain, and when I say culture, I mean everything from art NFTs, profile picture NFTs, to uh, music NFTs, which are starting to emerge, Royal.io, SoundBetXYZ, et cetera, to you know, sort of the discourse um, on chain, right? Like whether it's Twitter or like decentralized social networks like DSO, et cetera. That culture is very narrow. It's essentially like a CryptoPunk aesthetic. It's pixelated, it's extremely technical, it appeals to a very small set of developers and you really have to dig into it. It's technocratic, it's very like largely male, right? Lots of dudes uh, and lots of non-dudes. There's like some elements of like anime interspersed, but it's like a very, very specific culture. You know, so what are the top NFT series? Today, there's a lot of news about how Bored Apes flip CryptoPunks, but you have like CryptoPunks and you have like animal JPEGs, right? And that's sort of the culture. To me, there is so much opportunity and so much room to enrich on-chain culture, right? To infuse the blockchain, to put stuff on the blockchain that is high quality culture. And it, uh, expresses a far more diverse set of viewpoints, perspectives, and aesthetics than uh, is currently on-chain. And I think there's a massive opportunity there. I think some startups are starting to think about that. With classical music specifically, I do think there's an angle where, ironically, one of the things, well, maybe it's not ironic, but like one of the sort of aesthetics or principles around classical music is how sort of rarefied it is, right? How special it is and how scarce it is. There aren't that many people who play the violin. There aren't that many people who can play, you know, Beethoven concerto, right? Like it's hard, you need years and years of training. So if you take that angle, maybe there's a way. Now there's a problem there is like, okay, then maybe it's just Joshua Bell who releases NFTs and then we're, that doesn't solve anything, right? So I don't, I don't quite have the answer for you. Like I, again, I, I wish I had an end-to-end solution. I've been thinking about this a lot. And it doesn't help that a lot of people, both in music and classical music, are going to be come out of the gate being extremely skeptical of blockchain, anyways. Uh, so, oh so man, what an understatement! <laughs> We've all been yeah. on Twitter. We've all been on Twitter. Like, it's tough. Cool. It's tough. Yeah. Can I hop? Uh, can yeah. I hop in for a second? Please, please, please. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more about the culture aspect. It is very homogenous, very monolithic. It's it's a lot of Caucasian male energy there, and with I the was sprinkled like, anime. It was the perfect spring, description, dude. A couple like, of waifus, <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> look, I'm gonna just say it. Everybody's thinking it. We need some black people on the blockchain, y'all. Like, if you oh, want sure. some culture, you gotta get some sisters on there making some memes, dude. It's it's a wrap, man. It's over. It's Definitely. over. Producer Daniel saying, "Amen." This is something that I've been wondering if this is like part of what my mission should be personally. Mm. This is actually something I've never said out loud or don't think I have, but maybe I need to like be getting some black people in on blockchain. Cause like 
it's what you said. We've seen it over and over and over and over again in history, in ecosystems. It's just almost every aspect of life, diversity breeds strength and abundance, right? And so we need uh, so. to have more diverse voices in on this uh, on this journey. I want to break it down because like, I don't know if our listeners have heard all of our blockchain episodes. A lot of people still think crypto is a scam. Yeah, right? yeah. You were so kind in saying that I was like a pioneer of Web 2. I'm trying to be a pioneer of Web 3 as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I didn't mean that as an insult. You know it's really I mean? fun. No, it's great though. <laughs> no, I've never Beautiful. even considered myself to be that. And I'm honored to to have been you know given that. So I, I, I'm wondering, let's just be devil's advocate, right? I've been in these clubhouse conversations where people are telling me that I'm wrong. And that this is all a scam. How would you explain to somebody who believes the apex of musical achievement was Brahms that, you know, (laughs) making an NFT or having digital scarcity and ownership of your art as an artist, why is that important? And how, how would you explain that to them? I would probably start by acknowledging there are tons of scams. On, in crypto, that is a fact, a fact. So there's a reason for that perception, and we shouldn't deny that, right? 100%. And the reason it's a scam, there are a bunch of scams, is because there, you know, there aren't as many rules, there aren't as many regulations. It's like the early days of the internet. Also, Imagine like people, yeah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and people can make a lot of money scamming. So that perception is not wrong. That doesn't mean the whole thing is a scam. It just means there are a lot of scams on it. So we need to distinguish between those two. Why is digital scarcity and ownership uh, and in the context of music important? I think if you want to make that argument, you really have to believe in a couple of things. And if you, if you believe Brahms is the apex of musical achievement, then you may have trouble getting to these even premises. The, the first premise is more and more of our lives are becoming digital. Now, That is very obviously true for all of us in this room, right? And it's true, I think, for the majority of people, for instance, not maybe not the majority, but many of the people in the United States, uh, certainly probably a plurality, right? Like a sizable number of people, especially during the pandemic, even if they're employed, they're playing video games. Uh, If you're working, a lot of people are working from home. Most people own smartphones. Uh, Most people transact uh, digitally. And that is a trend that has only increased over the past 20 years, let's say. If, if you believe Brahma is the apex of human achievement, maybe you don't you know, have an email address, so you don't care, right? <laughs> so, but okay, fine. Then we're having two different conversations. But okay, yeah. if you believe uh, more of our lives are becoming digital, and th- the second premise you have to buy into is that people should accrue value for what they contribute. And contribution can come in many forms. The traditional model in music uh, has been, you know, if you're lucky, you get signed to a record label, let's say, and then you get an advance or some portion of proceeds of the, of the revenue stream. But really what's happening is the record label is sort of assuming that your risk, but like if you blow up, the, uh, you know, they get the majority of the streaming revenue, they get the majority of the album sales and so forth. But, you know, they're swallowing that risk for you. Um, and in the worst case, if you're a musician, you never get signed to a record label and you, you sort of have to self-distribute. Maybe you do own uh, your own IP, but like you may not have the full package, uh, full set of tools needed to distribute your content and to monetize it. Mm-hmm. So if you believe in those two premises, then 
what blockchain does provide is very much an end-to-end -end solution for the distribution and the ownership of your music as digitally scarce resources. So, you know, NFTs, for instance, right, are, are probably the most fitting model for this. NFTs, you can prove, okay, this person, there are, you know, 25 copies of this song, let's say, right? And these are the people who own it and you can prove it. And because it's on the blockchain and the blockchain is recognized as a legitimate ledger of transactions, that proves aspects like provenance, authenticity, uh, and ownership. And it gives you an out-of-the-box way to accrue value from it because you don't have to go through the rigmarole of, okay, I have to issue CDs. And if I put it on Spotify, uh, you know, I'm going to get 0 0.001 cents per stream, right? It's, it's a much more direct transactable method. So those are the reasons I think if you're a musician, you, you believe that uh, accruing value through your contribution is important, and you believe increasingly our lives are going to be digital, then I think there's a strong argument for why this is important for musicians. And uh, that's such like uh, like a beautiful, like nice, concise, really clear way to kind of explain what we're dealing with. And I definitely agree with both of you. The thing I want with music and just artists in general is that thank you, thank you, white Twitter bros uh, with, with <laughs> anime. You know, thank you for your service. You you did a great job. This is really cool. It's time for other people to kind of come in and in this, you know, we're in this almost like third third wave of this to bring in outsiders, people who aren't just stuck solely in the tech of things. Drew and I have a lot to thank our, our dear friend, Brian Lee, who is uh, like now a, a business partner and a, a, men, a blockchain mentor of sorts, uh, because he saw himself performing on Broadway and playing shows, being a musician to being like early adopter of this tech and really building on this tech and being in really deep into the ecosystem. He noticed this large gap between the people building it and the people who came up with it and what does it need to evolve and what at least i see that's encouraging is that unlike some of the problems of the classical music sphere which might not have reached its pain point it seems like blockchain is going out now and more and more people who don't necessarily have that tech background or who might not have like a full grasp of what's going on are realizing its value and people are finally bringing it in so brian he's our uh, red pill blue pill Mor morpheus thing and has brought <laughs> us into this space and so well, i mean that's what at least we're trying to do is introduce this and so i agree for me and maybe for all of us it's like we want to see it at the table this technology is here whether we like it or not and you know are we going to use this nuclear energy to to kill everyone or are we going to use this these nukes to power the world it might do a little bit of all of this but <laughs> i want to be a part of that conversation i don't want to be sitting out there with someone else deciding what to press the red button uh, as opposed to giving me um, you know the ability to charge my iphone Preach. so if we can get more people in there it's like that annoying thing they might be complaining about on twitter uh, could very well transform their lives and it's probably going to be a part of it Come on board, and if you don't like something about it, ha have a say on it. We, we don't have a say with Facebook. We don't really have a say. Yeah. We kind of have to be there because that's how you get gigs. We don't really have a say about email. You have to have one or you're not going to get the gigs. You, you, like There's so many things that have kind of left our hands, and so I'm like, yeah. this is still early. You have an opportunity to have agency to yeah. be able to gain power, to gain financial independence, to gain all the potential nice things or get scammed. Uh, you also have that. <laughs> but now's the time. Come in here and you actually can 
have an impact on the next gen of the economy, the next gen of the arts uh, administrations. So it's it's time we got to get people in there. Other than your your hilarious and, and active Twitter, which I praise you for, and love the the pudgy penguin, it's beautiful. Um, thank you, thank shout you. Shout outs. Are there some things we can do to bring people in easier? Even the low-hanging fruit that are probably interested, what are some things that are in your mind on how to kind of bring people in and bridge that gap? Yeah, I'm going to be very brutally honest here. Be brutally honest. Let's hear it. I think the most impactful thing you could do is figuring out the music, on-chain musical thing that sells for 20 ETH, okay? Right? Once the proof of concept, once the market, you prove the market, everyone's going to, LA Phil will start calling because everyone wants money. That's the, that's the, I want 20 ETH. I'm a yeah, big yeah. fan. I'll take that, it. Any of our listeners, my uh, wallet address is zero X. Yeah, yeah. Zero X X four four seven. I mean, that's generally how things work in crypto, right? It's like because it's, it's just essentially a massive free for all market. The market is is the law. It's like if the thing sells, how, why is that thing worth it? It's because it sold for that much. That's the way NFTs work. That's the way punks work. That's the way uh, apes work. I know there are like, for instance, like individual composers, you know, for instance, who are trying to mint their NFTs on chain and sell them for whatever point money. Fine. My question is, well, why would anyone want to buy that? I think the the key question is, what is the on chain classical music product that will sell for 5 ETH, 10 ETH, 20 ETH. If I were a musician trying to figure this out, that is the question I would be dedicating myself to. What is the thing that I can repeatedly sell for 5 ETH? And once you prove that, once you've made 50 ETH from that, 100 ETH from that, then everyone's going to obviously come because why wouldn't they? <laughs> Otherwise, you have, the, you have a monopoly, right? You have the market to yourself, right? So by competitive arbitrage, people have to come. So if you want more people to come, I think the Prove thing it. to focus on is actually building that musical product that's going to generate the revenue that will incentivize people to come. Now, maybe you need to do some amount of coaxing to get a critical mass of people to create that product. That's possible. Because I don't know what that product is. I couldn't tell you. Because maybe it's an orchestral thing. Maybe you need a full orchestra. Maybe it needs to be a chamber music thing. I don't quite know. Maybe you need a videographer. I'm not sure what it is. I, I, don't, I don't have that answer for you. But once you build the product, and you prove the market fit, if they deny it, who cares? Because they're just going to get left behind. Right now, there is no train that has left the station yet. I think the thing to do is start the train. Look, Yuga, I see so many parallels between this and Web 2. I cannot tell Who you. Drew is like, I cannot tell you how many teachers and colleagues at the time yeah. Like 2014, they were telling me you're wasting your time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But now I have LA Phil, NEC paying consulting firms to talk to me, to Harvard. ask me how to do a YouTube channel or how to do an yeah. Instagram campaign. So your thesis is correct from my personal experience. When you make the proof of concept undeniable, and what's beautiful about that is that the more competitors that join your category of production, yep. the more powerful the market share in the whole pie grows. That's right. It's rising tide. The rising, rising tide, tide lifts all boats. It's so true, bro. I hate being the dude that like 
dials it back. <laughs> but I think there is this whole crypto rabbit hole is so fucking deep. I've been yeah. in it for years. You've been in it for years. And so for people who are still kind of just starting to get their feet wet and trying to wrap their brain around it like an amoeba, can you explain what a smart contract is and why that's important? Most people don't even, they don't even go that deep. They just think, oh, Bitcoin, digital gold, blockchain, I know everything. But they're missing out on the, the basic thing that ETH was like known for is the smart contract. So can you illuminate that? So, and how much, there's a lot to, before smart contracts. So should, should we assume sort of some basic knowledge here or? Go ahead and just lay out the quickest, dirtiest, and most in-depth. Okay. <laughs> of okay. I'll try. I'll try. i four hours. Go. Okay. <laughs> I'm timing okay. you. Here we go. Okay. Um, so what is the smart contract? Before we get to that, what is cryptocurrency? Cryptocurrency uh, intends to be money. So we, we need to understand what money is. Uh, money is a thing that uh, satisfies certain properties. It is a store of value. It is a, uh, a medium of exchange and it is a uh, ledger of transactions. So these three properties, for instance, the US dollar is a currency, it's money. Mm-hmm. Uh, now- it- it's also funny we have to explain to our musician colleagues colleagues what the US dollar is cuz we don't we, we don't have We're much of that familiar. so we do need to We're like, not we, Oh oh we haven't covered that on this okay no. <laughs> <laughs> oh. so, so the federal yeah, you reserve got, <laughs> you guys haven't seen the US dollar recently it's been a while so like what's... Oh, okay all right well okay well so money traditionally why does money have value the real answer, Paul Krugman said this, is very famous, New York Times uh, opinion column writer and also Nobel Prize winning economist. The reason uh, fiat currency like the US dollar has value is because if you don't respect it, men with guns arrest you, right? <laughs> the government enforces it. That's why the dollar is valuable, Facts. right? Fundamentally, there's a security budget. Uh, so you can emulate those properties of security, of medium of exchange, of store value and so on without a government without a centralized entity that enforces it, you can actually um, replicate those properties through uh, mathematics and in specifically specific aspects of cryptography, one-way fun- functions, elliptical curve groups, uh, and hash functions, basically. One-way functions, irreversible mathematical functions. And those allow you to create those properties. And why do we want these? The reason we want that is if you believe that governments or centralized entities can be corrupt or corrupted, as has happened in many times throughout human history, Mm -hmm. you would instead want a system that is uncorruptible because so many different people are operating it, right? So for instance, Bitcoin is an example of that, where there are many different node operators who ensure the security of the chain so that even if one uh, person were corrupt, one node were corrupt, that wouldn't matter because of uh, this new algorithm Satoshi Nakamoto came up with called Nakamoto Consensus. And it would be prohibitively expensive for 51% of the nodes to uh, corrupt the security. That would cost so much money that it wouldn't be in anyone's financial interest to do that. So the incentives are aligned to make sure uh, that the money and the transactions are, are valid. And, and yet the network stays secure. Okay, so that's cryptocurrency. Beautiful. In that context, what are smart contracts? 
Smart contracts are an, a sort of an, a layer on top of that where, okay, you start out with digital money. You can send from here to there, there to there, et cetera. Smart contracts allow you to perform arbitrarily complex computations, what's called uh, essentially turn completeness. So you can do anything that a computer can do uh, and do that in a secure setting like one like Bitcoin, but uh, more, more traditionally one associates that with Ethereum because that's sort of how it was developed. So for example, something you might want to do with a smart contract is like, okay, you know, if you're in the process of buying a house, you traditionally have to put your money in escrow and then it gets released under certain conditions. You might diverse the funds to a certain set of people, depending on what happens. If it's a you know mortgage, you pay a certain amount uh, per month, et cetera. In the human world, right? Again, humans are corruptible. You know, if the bank decides, oh, well, actually, this money you kept in escrow, you're not a legitimate buyer, uh, so uh, we're going to take it away from you. That can happen. Or if you know, guys on like the no-fly list or whatever, like the you know, the bank decides, oh, okay, this guy's not legitimate anymore. They may take away the mortgage, etc. Right? Uh, so humans are corruptible, and there's no necessary way of enforcing that. Uh, computers under the security properties of blockchain basically are not corruptible because they just do what the code says. So smart contracts are a way of encoding these uh, financial programs on chain that guarantee their execution without a risk of corruption that you might see in the human world. And that's really important for the same reasons that uh, you might think cryptocurrency is important because it's essentially a monetary system that is decentralized, not prone to centralized failures uh, and uncorruptible. That mm. was the most beautiful <laughs> explanation. I want to chop that up and just like send that out as like an email newsletter. An <laughs> NFT. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna turn it into an NFT. Oh yeah, faking this podcast NFT. That's yes. the first one right there. Yeah. <laughs> My next question for you, building upon that, because NFTs are a type of smart contract. No. Yes. Yep. So. Can you illuminate maybe some platforms? Have you delved deeply on platforms that are, you know, uh, applying music NFTs in an effective way? Like, uh, have you heard of Async Art or Audius? Mm -hmm. Or is there another project that you're like really bullish on right now that we should be checking out? I'm surface level, level familiar with a lot of them. Okay. One of the things I want to do over this holiday break is to dig deep on a couple of them because I'm okay. not as, like I, I've looked at Audius. I've looked at sound.xyz, which seems pretty cool. Um, there are a couple of others. Uh, I think catalog is another one. But yeah, I, I, I don't, I'm not as familiar with them, but I would really like to get into them. But I'm happy to talk about sort of any aspect of them as I understand it, though. Yeah, for sure. I just was curious because like one of the bigger hurdles for adoption is finding the platform that people will upload their art to, like the decision. It's so rare for somebody in 2021, classically trained, who has recorded their own music, self-published, and believes in crypto. That's like 12 people, <laughs> right? So- <laughs> And the, the amount of choice that is out there, it's very difficult yeah. to figure out like what is the platform to post my stuff on. So I was just curious. Um, I guess we'll just have to circle back on that because I do need to do my research as well. Yeah. It, so I, I definitely want to do more research on that. 
some off the cuff thoughts. First of all, I, I think the reason it's it, it's actually it is more difficult in music than in visual art, where obviously in visual art, OpenSea had their moment. And right now it's like, okay, if you're going to issue an NFT, you probably go to OpenSea, right? And there's mm-hmm. a couple of others, I'm sure, um, and on different blockchains. But like, it's kind of like that, they're the winner in the market. Yeah. Probably this is coming out with an NFT market too, by the way. So we'll see what yes, happens. Yes, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, a little shout but, out. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but whereas with music, you're right. That, that hasn't happened yet. So that is an interesting state for the market to be in. And I don't know that there's an obvious or right answer. And that's probably part of the barrier to entry is like only people who are going to be interested in researching that type of thing are going to do that. And that's kind of a high, a high barrier. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What One thought I do have, just being relatively crypto native and having talked to like, you know, folks in the NFT space and so forth. This is not financial advice. However, a lot of people do see L1 Ethereum I mean, th- that gave birth to NFTs, right? Like ERC-721 is the standard that was birthed on Ethereum. If you had a thesis that, well, if our NFTs originate on Ethereum and that's sort of the first legitimate chain, sure, you can have Solana NFTs, you can have Phantom, Terra, other NFTs, but like if Ethereum are the OG NFTs and that's where like the big action is going to happen, I don't think it's crazy to think the same thing would, would happen with music because yeah. music mm-hmm. NFTs are also going to be ERC-721s. So mm-hmm. kind of leaning into ethereum there it is expensive so that's the other thing so like if you want to proof of concept maybe you do something somewhere else but i can see it happening potentially on ethereum i wanted to continue digging in this so now that you've kind of laid the framework for smart contracts and eth and obviously one of the difficult things with music is that unlike these and the NFT art and people are like, haha, it's a JPEG and yeah, but haha, it sold for $69 million. So you can, you can laugh, you can laugh all you want on your yeah. actual yacht. You can be bored on your real yacht. You can own an ape on a yacht now. Like that's a uh, real, real ape money and be bored with it. But in music, we don't really have that comparative. So obviously in physical art, there are millions and millions of dollars sunk into art ownership all right now. It's kind yeah. of like we just digitize something that's very well known and also very unregulated in the yeah. real world. Uh, so it kind of makes sense. But in music, other than the Wu-Tang Clan and that uh, Martin Shkreli asshole pharmaceutical guy buying <laughs> that like $2 million Wu-Tang album, I can't think of any other time where someone's really driven scarcity to the level that the rock JPEGs can get. And so I think that's probably one of the biggest barriers to entry. Now, that doesn't mean we can't do it. And so like that's why I'm excited about it maybe this is the opportunity to where f- people can finally enjoy the ownership of sound it's just hard to own something that's not physical it's not the score it's not the mp3 it's not the file it's sound and it's it's temporary you can yeah. only listen to a fragment of it and so maybe this is the opportunity for sound to have ownership because we're going to get the metaverse we're getting vr we're getting ar we're getting there maybe suddenly sound can have a bigger role and sound ownership can have a bigger role you mentioned one of the issues is that the train hasn't even left the station people haven't missed anything we're trying to figure out what is going to get this train out of here and you know selling for something for 20 eth that's great i wanted to i uh, in the latter half of this episode, play a little bit of a game. And if we could just kind of over the next couple minutes before we wrap, like ideate on some of the potential solutions, what it could have people leave the train. So obviously selling something for $100,000, an MP3 for $100,000, 
That'd be great. That'd be great. I'm curious about some other things. So I'll start and I'd love to hear uh, both of your ideas. If the sounds aren't, if selling sounds aren't super popular or doing stems and selling, you know, a series of a hundred stems and it builds some piece, what about owning an artist? So if there's not as much appeal, like what if we NFT, forget Joshua Bell's album, whatever. What if we NFT Joshua Bell? (laughs) <laughs> like, do, would people be interested in that? I'm just spit, spitballing things. What are some ideas that come from you? How are we going to get this train to leave the station? So owning a person thing makes me uncomfortable. I have to yeah, say. I mean, as, as <laughs> yeah. a black person, it's not a good, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 It's not a good <laughs> idea, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. how are we leaving uh, the station? This is a safe space, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> We're going to go on the record that owning people is, is <laughs> not, good. not good. Not that, good. We yeah. don't condone that in the Fake Notes podcast. Yeah, yeah. It's, this is yeah. immutable. I had a couple thoughts on that, though. Um, not on that, but like the stuff you said. So I do think you're right that owning something a, a length of time, right? That's a me- piece of music, right? As opposed to a 1024 pixel by 1024 pixel square, they're very, very different in the human experience. Think about how you interact with a phone, right? It's primarily visual. If you're on the train, you're on TikTok, it's on mute. So sound is very secondary to humans. That's like just a reality we have to deal with. So in that world, I do have trouble seeing a world where it's pure audio ownership, I do think there has to be some visual component to it. It doesn't necessarily have to be fancy. Maybe it's animated, maybe it's not, but just a waveform, an abstract waveform, by the nature of how apps are structured, I I don't think that's gonna be enough. There needs to be a visual component because humans are visual creatures and we interact with technology visually. Another point I do wanna raise, I was, I was talking to Legion, who is a venture capitalist at Paradigm Fund, who's invested in sound.xyz. She's pretty bullish on music NFTs. I, I was like, well, given this constraint, how do you know like music NFTs are going to take off? Isn't music categorically different from art in the way, Trevor, you mentioned, like, you know, owning a piece of music? It's just like not something people really conceptualize because that's just not how things work. And she was very clear about this. She, she was like, no, it's going to happen. And here's why. It was only very recently, for instance, that handbags became an item that was to be collected, right? With the advent of Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and so forth. Pre-industrial age, you know, you know, pre, let's say, 1900s, handbags were purely functional items and it would be insane to think about that having accrued value, right? And the cultural conditions changed, right? More disposable income, uh, more of a middle, upper middle class, et cetera, the haute couture, so forth changed so that the handbag became much more than a functional item. It became a collectible and it had, there was an element of scarcity to it that gave it value. And it then, you know, kind of went into the realm of high value items and arguably art. And so if you believe in that thesis, then, then there's no reason music can't have that same term. It just needs to be that right moment. I would not be surprised if 20, late 2022 is not that mo- is that moment. I think it could be next year. And the only question to me is, what is that packaging? What's the visual element, especially with the classical music? Like in my mind, it could be something as simple, right? Let's say, you know, I think it's like something A that sounds pretty cool. So like, it's not too avant-garde. 
I think you start there. But it's very clearly acoustic. It's very clearly classical music. You lean into the classical music aspect of it. Maybe there's like a the video aspect of it makes it clear that it's um, artists, like, you know, a violinist playing it. And there's some element of it that's very, that is predisposed to being NFT. So like, for instance, serialized, maybe it's like a single piece that's broken up into 20 pieces. And then you sell it as one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 20, et cetera. And each, each person owns a part of it, something like that. I think that could have potential, but again, it, it's very hard to predict. And, and, and these are like, you know, the market dynamics and so forth have such, such a large say in it. But I do think, you know, if you, if you believe in the handbag thesis, then you can also believe in the music thesis. So you're saying um, owning people on the blockchain is a bad idea. That's fascinating, that's the handbag thesis. Wow. I've never thought about that. That's incredible. Can I, can I extrapolate on this a little bit? Because I couldn't Please. agree with you more, Yuga. I'm going to combine that with a couple of things that I've noticed in my life. Do you remember MySpace? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You remember that shit? It, it was honestly probably the, the best, still to this date, the best digital extension of who you are that has ever been made, in my humble opinion. It, it, mm. it was, you made your own background. You had your own song that you featured on there. You had your top friends. It was just, your, you had your profile picture and you, you learned your had, first html like you had your first yeah. html you had all the surveys telling people who you were i don't think it's really been replicated in such an organic you know democratized way and the thing i want to circle back with is the song you would put on your facebook page mm. i'm willing to i mean on your myspace page i'm willing to bet that just thinking about that Whatever you put on your your MySpace page, there would be demand to actually own mm -hmm. that song. Yep, yep, hundred percent. And so, whenever anybody would hear that song, somebody could have the pride to say, "Like, I own a part of that song." You know what I that, mean? Totally. Yeah, that's the sort of the same underlying current of like profile picture NFTs, right? It's mm -hmm. like you're identifying as either part of this tribe or like this is my vibe. Right. Mm -hmm. And not only is it my vibe that's out there, I own this vibe. I think I, I think that's really powerful. That's so powerful because music, what is music more than a vibe? And I like the way you described it as ownership over a piece of time. Now, yeah. I want to push back on one of the things you said about humans not valuing sound over visual medium. Mm. I agree, and I also disagree to a part of that. As a YouTuber and, and visual storyteller, I've also learned through the construction of my own art that humans process sound faster than mm. we do visual stimuli. And so it may be that we don't prioritize them the same way. And if you look at any like YouTube con channel construction, they always say to invest in your audio equipment first before mm. your video equipment because people are more likely to click off of a YouTube video for poor audio than poor video. If it's mm. poor audio, they're more likely to leave it. So if it has good audio but shitty video, they're more likely to stay for a longer amount of time. Mm. So I think there is some value. There are some parameters where audio is more valuable than video. Now, the way that I think about it though, because I don't know if you heard, but like in the middle of last year, UMG 
uh, sorry, yeah, UMG sold a bunch of their music rights to TikTok. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. And it was like millions and millions of songs, right? I see a future where if you own a little bit of a part of a song and it's featured in a TikTok, it's featured in a movie, featured in a TV show, somebody's got it playing in the background of their Facebook or Instagram video, the owners of that song, because it's being consumed, there's some sort of smart contract transaction that goes on in the background and those owners of that song get a little bit of value in their pocket for owning that song and having like you said the value being consumed a hundred percent yeah totally totally agree with that what is interesting to me about that and this is i don't have again i don't have that many answers here is like when you end up in that world where it's five second clips five second clip five second clip five second clip is that even classical music at that point maybe it is but like, how far Kurt are Tom. we willing to? Yeah, yeah. maybe. Was... Hinda myth, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you 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 said the secret word, bro. Oh, <laughs> but like, how far are we willing to deviate from sort of the original concept? I mean, maybe it's an entirely new thing, and maybe that's fine. One of the values I do like about classical music it, it is a little longer than a two minute song. It's like you know you have idea space for a full idea to be fleshed out, right? Like there's complex development and so forth. Those are the values that I do enjoy about classical music. And it's like, well, if we're going to NFTize that and chop it up into five second things, is it like, maybe we're making money, maybe we're, we're you know, getting ETH in our pockets, but is that like really the thing we're trying to do? You know what I mean? I agree. It's a great question too. And anytime we interact with Johan, like it's always seems to be big vision and it's not just well, yeah, it's like, yeah, I'd love to make a bunch of money and be famous. But there is always that at the core of it, being an artist yeah. and like making impact and change that is so inspiring. It's not change for change sakes. It's like, hey, yeah. we're here to actually save this and we're doing it from the inside. We're doing it from the outside. I'm curious about that, too, because continuing where yes, ending these ideas. Yeah. So we've got our digital MySpace. Tom's our friend again. Uh, yeah, I miss know, Tom. Like no, yeah, Tom's a friend. Life's good. We've ranked our friends in top eight fashion. We're getting in towards this metaverse. We know it's coming. We all watched that uncomfortable for 50 minutes of Zuckerberg. Should have paid an actor, but it, the metaverse is here, uh, whether we like it or, or not. And so obviously that's a place where we get that MySpace. We can get that sound. You could walk up to our Minecraft castle or whatever yep. and have that sound. You can have a sound. Um, some other ideas is we're getting the series of we're getting bored eight yacht clubs. And so like, why not write the music? Why not have, yeah. you know, yeah. 10,000 yeah. serialized versions that match that they can get excited. It's 30 seconds, but it is a fair point. Okay. Let's get all the classical composers in this. Like, Oh, this is, this is what you need. Right. Cause you at least you have my, like, is that what you want to do? Is, is that what moves the art form? But at least with my interaction with the, the younger folks, you know, like teaching, a few years back, middle schoolers, you know, this emerging age is that they've been exposed to so much different types of music, so many different cultures. They've seen literally everything thanks to being born in great internet. And I've just noticed it's it's cooler to be uncool. I mean, like, look at mm. Big Bang Theory. Like, a whole bunch of nerds was, like, the top-selling show for 10 years. Being different is now a fashionable thing. It's a badge of honor. You don't just have to be the jock uh, on the sports ball team. And so I've also noticed this kind of shift towards that, and maybe it's doing it ironically, but 
embracing these longer forms that while on one hand, everything's getting shorter, but on the other hand, there's all these other things that are long. There's a very popular indie game. Can't remember the name, but its whole purpose is slowness. I don't remember it, but once you start it, it's a 400 day clock until like this giant God awakens. And like, it literally, that's the, that's not even the end game time. It's, it starts and it it pairs with your clock. So some people just speed up their computers internal clock, but the whole point, (laughs) and you're moving at this very slow person, it's beautiful art. You have such small objectives. It can take you an hour to walk across a room. And it's a very popular game to wait 400 years. And you know what happens at the end, the God awakens and he's like disappointed in you or whatever. (laughs) There's no real objective. You can't really beat this game and yet it's so popular and i've just seen in music i mean we get mac rick's max richter's sleep it's eight hours i love it it's fun there's this odd expansion and so maybe we can exist for this other crowd to where you know human nature where we we live in extremes and so maybe we enter in at this extreme where things are long where people want that experience. They want the meditation. They want whatever it is. I don't have any set solid ideas, but who knows? Maybe that's a void we fill. Look, like maybe it's zagging, right? Maybe it's like <laughs> you mint the longest music song <laughs> NFT. It's an eight hour song. It's the first eight hour song on the chain. And like that, that's not that crazy to me. That that could be very interesting. It's like you like all yeah oh yeah ooh impressive a thousand pixels this is this is one terabyte of sound <laughs> yeah get, yeah yeah get yeah. wrecked this will destroy your iPhone like. <laughs> yeah yeah no I mean that would be I think that could be really interesting I don't know I think the, all these ideas are worth I would really love to see like you know you guys and I mean I I'd, I'd love to contribute and like I do think there is something here where we can it's because it's so fucking early it's so fucking early it's crazy early nobody's done it like and the first mover advantage here is going to be crazy i do think there's an opportunity to just make something something even if it fails the first time right just keep building on it like something musical that is worth that has that artistic integrity that we're all very used to put it on chain and get it validated and recognized i do think there's an opportunity there Mm. Why are you revealing my plans, bro? <laughs> like, why are you why are you doxing my plans, y'all? It's decentralized. We all know that. <laughs> no, it's huge. And 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 I want to reiterate what you were saying earlier, Yuga, about like that first 50 ETH sale, right? And I know for a fact that the music video is not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that I just keep coming back to TikTok because what's so interesting about it is you could have one sound or one dialogue and you can get 50 different iterations on it, right? You can get remixed over and over and over again. And what is music if not just a remixing of similar ideas and a similar pattern over and over and over in a form we call genre? So what's really cool is like maybe – when somebody listens to something on the blockchain, like a little two-minute song, three-minute song, they take it, flip it, give homage to the original creator, and they make something new. And the original mm-hmm. creator makes something off of that art. So it's kind of like you know how Brahms with the first symphony totally stole from Beethoven. Uh, Beethoven's yeah, yeah. Ninth Symphony. It's like if if you know Beethoven's estate got got a little bit of a kickback. from that that biting i don't know 
but I, I agree with what both of you both of you said. Both extremes, short and long, are gonna have a place in here, and different artists will fill that niche. It's a whole new ecosystem. Yeah, man. We're coming close to time. We don't want to take any more of yours because you got to go change the world and stuff, you know. <laughs> but I wanted to just like wrap up before we roll out the carpet and like hear hear where to follow you and, and all that fun stuff. Uh, tying it back to you specifically, you put in your time at Google and advanced yourself in there. You've had a ton of success being a conductor and growing yourself and doing all sorts of or expected badass things um, that you are doing. Where do you see yourself in five years? Like, what is the, if you closed your eyes and you dreamed, like, what is the ideal situation for you personally in in 10 years? You wake mm. up, what are you doing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the thing that has motivated me for a very long time um, is how can you shape the way people think? How can you get people to change their mind? How can they, how can you get people who are convinced, oh, it has to be this way to open up a bit and say, well, maybe it can also be this way. I can see things are, you know, think, see the merits of this. How can you have that type of influence? And to me, it's always been the case that culture is the, is the way of doing that. Like you create the cultural conditions uh, for open-mindedness, for deeper and uh, more considered thought. And I think whether it's Beethoven or working on crypto, that has been a common theme for me. It's like I'm very interested in contributing to culture in a way that influences a lot of people to reconsider their thought patterns. Because I think a healthy society, in a healthy society, people, you know, both have their convictions and can be open-minded to change. I think right now, at least in America, where all three of us, all, all three of us live. Uh, people tend to be very entrenched in their own thought patterns, and that's very unhealthy for society. So I, I think it's important for culture to shift that mental model en masse. And so if you ask me where I want to be five, 10 years, you know, I think for me, music has been a great medium for that because it's so abstract, right? It doesn't have to deal with words necessarily, especially classical music. So, you know, that's a really interesting medium to, to try to accomplish that. Crypto is really interesting. It's coming at it from a totally different angle of like sort of governance structures, sort of metapolitical structures, financial structures that people don't even think about in their day-to-day -day lives and just kind of attacking it from that vector. I don't know, five, 10 years, I'd love to see a way, as long as I'm working in that space, I, I you know, it could be music and crypto. That'd be really cool. Yeah. But um as long as I'm working on something, some sort of cultural movement or aspect, having an influence on it to impact how people think, that, that's kind of what I'm interested in. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, brother. You are definitely one of us. Um, I wanted to, <laughs> wanted to thank you so much for your time, man. This was an illuminating conversation. I wish we had more time to talk with you, man. Like, I just, I, I love the way your brain works, and I know that somewhere in the in the near future we're going to have some big things to work on together i appreciate that man thank you guys so much for having me on you guys are putting in the work here you know and <laughs> just, again like i mentioned just looking at the roster of the people who've come on this show there's a very consistent theme here and um i'm really thankful that you guys had me on and i think uh yeah i'm excited for the future that that hopefully we build together before we pull the curtains on the show my brother 
We want to lay out the purple and gold <laughs> carpet for you to highlight what you're working on, any upcoming projects that you're excited about that you can share, and or where people can find you on the interwebs. Yeah, definitely. I think I probably spend too much time on Twitter, so that's the best <laughs> place to, to see what I'm working on. Uh, so it's Yuga Kohler. Uh, Instagram is at Yuga Conduct. I am music director of the Ridgefield Symphony Orchestra in Connecticut. So if you happen to live in Connecticut and want to see me conduct, uh, ridgefieldsymphony.org. Johan and I are work and and a, a special third person actually are working on a project together that will hopefully come out next year. So uh, when that happens, I'll also let you know. Thank you for the alpha, my brother. Woo! <laughs> Thank you guys. <laughs> Thanks Appreciate for it. coming through. Till next time, you guys.